0: Thank you for tuning in to the Grace Way Sermon Cast. Grace Way is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor, so grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. How many of you? Uh, you love christmas time when it comes to holidays like christmas time is your favorite all right all right uh, you're kind of like you're kind of like the person you like being crosby you're like it's the most wonderful time of the year uh, the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer and all that type of stuff okay how many of you just want to say you know what christmas is is kind of nice but you know it, it's you know i could take it or leave it you sinners, you people. Yeah, it's the birth of Jesus. What's wrong with you? I set you up for that one, didn't I? I am one that I have a hard time kind of getting in the Christmas spirit. You know, the older I get, I think I feel like the years go by faster. So Christmas just kind of sneaks up on you uh, a little bit. And so it takes me a while to get in the Christmas spirit. But once the decorations are up, I usually kind of come around and, and start listening to the Christmas music and kind of get, you know, into the Christmas spirit. I like, the, I like the time off with family. I like the traditions. I like the cookies. I like the candy. Fruitcake is wrong. Anybody with me on that? All right, I can get into everything except for the fruitcake. I don't understand uh, that kind of stuff. But, but like I said, you may be here today and maybe you disagree. Maybe Christmas brings up some happy memories, but maybe not so happy memories as well. Maybe this Christmas you're kind of like just bracing for impact because you know this Christmas is going to be different. Maybe you've had a hard year. Maybe you've lost somebody this year, and you're thinking, man, this is going to be a tough season, and uh, please know that you're being prayed for, and we're lifting you up, and and I want to just call your attention to the fact that we worship someone who will never leave us, never forsake us. The one who we worship and the one who we celebrate at Christmas time is always with us, and uh, so I want you to know that from your pastor, I'm praying for you, and it can be difficult. And that's kind of what's behind this series this morning uh, and what we're getting into is a lot of times we have our expectations of what Christmas is like and should be and Hallmark and Lifetime and all those all those networks. They do a wonderful job of telling you what Christmas should be and the magic and the wonder and stuff. But let's be honest, uh, just because it's that time of year, it doesn't make some of the chaos go away, does it? And so that's kind of what this series is going to kind of get into Uh, this morning, because it's really, and and around the world, people celebrate Christmas differently, too. Your family may have different traditions than my family does, and we may look at it in a different way, and it's a lot like, kind of reminds me a lot of the way that the Bible is laid out in the Gospels, in the first four books of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all kind of talk about the same thing, but they do it from different perspectives and different angles and cover Jesus in different lights. Like, for instance, Mark depicts Jesus as the servant of all that uh, he's the one that was sent by God to serve his people, to submit himself to the Father's will, um, and then even unto the death. And in this book, we, we find in Mark, Jesus is our king, but he's in the form of a servant. And in Luke, we see Jesus as the savior of humanity. Luke starts off by just, you know, with the Christmas story and talks about how the Messiah has come. We find that he, his humanness um, in, in, the, in the nativity. We find his humanness in a lot of those things. We find it in his genealogy being traced all the way back uh, to Adam, the very first human being. So Luke really focuses on the humanity of Jesus Christ, even though he's the Messiah. John presents Jesus as the great I am, as the son of God. And uh, John kind of just, just really lays out that, yes, Jesus is man, but he is God as well. And for any new believer that is wanting to get a good biographical sketch Of your Savior, John is usually one of the best places to start with understanding that, although you'll never go wrong in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or actually just get into all four of them. But Matthew, where we're gonna spend our time this Christmas, Matthew gives us uh, this picture of Jesus as the sovereign king as he is Lord and and, and creator of all things, and he has dominion over everything, that he's the prophesied one through all of the Old Testament prophets. Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the messianic savior that has come to earth to lead his kingdom. And it doesn't matter if you are Jew, Greek, Gentile, black, white, man, woman, boy, girl. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus Christ can touch your life and you need Jesus and we need Jesus that's kind of the idea behind Matthew and you would think that Matthew focusing on the royal nature of Christ would uh, it would be a pretty picture and it would be a very distinct and noble and refined picture of Jesus but the arrival of Jesus in Matthew chapter one and two is anything um, but pretty it's anything but peaceful it's anything like what it's anything but what the the song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of Year, would portray. Because in Matthew, you see a picture of Jesus' arrival, and you see a picture of Jesus' ministry that is ugly, it's messy, it's chaotic. And the reason for that is is because Jesus' ministry was to redeem us. And we're ugly. And that's not a physical reference, but, you know, y'all should see what I see each week. I'm just teasing, I'm teasing. Y'all are like, yeah, look, we have to look at every week. It's messy, it's chaotic, it's dysfunctional, this world that we've made through our sin. And so as we look at this ministry of Christ and we look at the birth of Christ, it's a picture of the, the messiness of the world that he came to save. And so this morning, we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we're going to begin reading and we're going to look at Matthew 1, uh, verses 1 through 17 today. And uh, if you'll notice, it's the, uh, it's the genealogies. How many of you ever heard some really, how many of you just get excited every time the pastor opens up and says, hey, let's look at the genealogies? All right, so let's let's do this. And I'm reading this morning from the Christian Standard Bible because the begats and and all of those things are are hard flowing there. So if you would follow along in uh, in your scripture, I'm going to read this morning, beginning in verse number one. It says, an account of the genealogy or the bloodline of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat or fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. There were 12 of them. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hez- Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. And Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar followed Methan. And Methan fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus who is called the Christ. And in verse number 17, it says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, another 14 generations. So be honest. How many of you dozed off during that? All right, be you're in church, don't lie. You dozed off. How many of you, when you're doing your, your Bible reading and stuff, and maybe you're doing your read through, the, read through the Bible in a year plan, when you come to the genealogies, You just kind of skim it or you just kind of skip over it. You're in church, remember? I'm going to raise my hand and be the leader here, okay? All right, you do that sometime, okay? You know, uh, (laughs) here's the problem. You say that you're all in with Jesus, but you can't read the genealogies. All right, so there's your good Baptist guilt trip for you this morning. You should feel bad that you've skipped over pieces of the Bible. No, I'm, I'm just kidding, all right? The least you could do is get some good baby names in there. I mean, there's some good stuff in there, right? Aminadab, Hezron, Shealtiel. I mean, any of you looking for baby names, there's a whole list for you there, right? Um, the truth is a lot of people aren't into genealogies. All right, And they're especially not into the genealogies of other people, unless you're like a historian or some of you may be into like the Ancestry.com, you'll pay money to go on there and find. My thing is, I've got enough relatives as it is and I'm just kind of afraid what I might find when I start digging through my line, okay? After going home for Thanksgiving, you're probably thinking, yeah, I don't know if I wanna dig too deep into my bloodline, into my bloodline either. So we might think it odd that Matthew, who wants to present Jesus as the sovereign king over all, the Messiah, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the royal nature, Jesus, that he would start off the greatest story of the greatest king that will redeem all of mankind, that he would start it off with a boring genealogy, right? Why would you start off with that? Luke does the same thing. I love Mark, man. Mark's like, let's just get down to business. If you start off Mark, he's like, let's get right into this, okay? Uh, John, you know, he gives us a little bit of background as well, but Mark is kind of the working man's, uh, the working man's gospel. But I believe that it's important that we have these genealogies for for one of two reasons. And that is because in in the Jewish ancient days, genealogy and bloodline was important. Where you came from meant a lot. And in that culture, it meant everything. So especially when it came to knowing who the Messiah would be, because there were so many prophecies that related to the Messiah, it had to be proven that Jesus, who was the Messiah... Had to be proven that he was coming from the right bloodline. They'd been looking for this for years and for centuries and for generations. The other reason that it's important is because I believe this, and this may sound like a crazy statement, but I believe that in this genealogy, everything that we need to know about Christianity, Christianity is contained in here. All the essentials are in this genealogy, just this list of names. All the essentials that we need for our faith are right here, and it is a wonderful picture of redemption, and it is a beautiful picture of the power of the Messiah that we worship. So let's dive in. We're going to look at five points. There's way more points, but there's five real things that we can grab as we kick off the Christmas season from just this from this genealogy, knowing the bloodline of our Savior, and realize we're part of this bloodline too. This is our family tree. It may not be our blood, but it is our spiritual family tree, That we're all part of as well. The first thing that we have to understand is that the gospel, what we talk about, what we preach all the time, the gospel is not just good advice. The gospel is good news. And I want you to know this. I borrow a lot of the, I'm borrowing a lot of these lines and points from from some other preachers and ministers. This one comes from Pastor Tim Keller. A lot of stuff is gonna come from J.D. Greer and a couple of others. I'm gonna be quoting a lot of people through this series because when you get into the bloodline, when you get into this, man, there is so much stuff that we can pull. And I just wanted to disclaim that it's like don't go away thinking I came up with all this on my own. There's there's nothing under the sun and there's good resources out there. But the first thing is the gospel is not just a good story. It's not just good advice. It's good news for us. The gospel is actual history. It actually happened. We start off a lot of our stories with once upon a time in a land far away or long, long ago in a galaxy Far, far away, 11 days till Star Wars, people, that's all I'm saying. 11 days. But we'll start off our stories. We'll start off our stories with Once Upon a Time or something like that because we're wanting to indicate this is a story. It didn't really happen, but we can pull some good life lessons and metaphors from it, and there's some good valuable things to it. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not a Once Upon a Time thing, it is something that actually happened in history. It is real, it is genuine, and the reason that we continue to tell the story 2,000 years later is because it's the most pivotal event of all of mankind's history. Matthew doesn't start the gospel story with once upon a time, he starts it with a genealogy because he's saying this actually happened, this is an actual event, this is something that really took place in history, and the most important feature of Christianity is that it, it actually happened. We're not just talking about a story that took place. We're talking about actual events. Same thing for creation. We must come to a place, and I realize we're in a, we're in a society that is very advanced scientifically and says that, no, everything evolved into place. But we have to be in a place in our faith where we say, creation took place as the Word of God says. Because if not, if we don't know if we were created by God, how can we say that, and believe that we can be redeemed by God? Amen. Gospel is actual history. Um, It's not just a set of principles that Jesus taught to us. It's something that Jesus did for us. Because the gospel makes uh, Christianity different from everything else. You see, a lot of religions and a lot of world philosophies and things over time, they have a lot of good principles. They have a lot of good moral standards that really would stand on their own regardless of who their founder is. Okay? Like Buddhism. Buddhism has a lot of standards and principles that are moralistic and everything, and those principles could stand on their own without Buddha having ever existed. Kind of the same thing for Islam. The belief that, uh, that there, is a, there is a God out there to please and that there's moralistic tendencies in those things, all of those stand without Muhammad ever having had to come and be a prophet because he's a messenger of what, of what Islam teaches. Christianity is totally different. Christianity has a lot of good moral teachings. They have a lot of values and, and principles that Jesus taught. But if Jesus didn't come to teach them and if Jesus didn't do what he did, Christianity means nothing. It all rests on Jesus being a real person, having lived, having died, having resurrected from the grave. It's not just a series of teachings. See, because Christianity is, it's wonderful, the teachings, and we need to follow what Jesus said and be obedient to his commands. But if Jesus did not be, if Jesus was not obedient to the father and die on the cross and raised from the dead, there's no reason for us to follow him in the first place. It's because Christianity is less about what Jesus taught us to do and more about what he did for us. That's why Christmas, we get gifts, because what he has done for us is the greatest gift of all time. And this is why the gospel is not just good advice. This is why the gospel is something that changes us. It's good news. When Jesus was born, who showed up to announce it? Do you remember? Over in the book of Luke, angels showed up to announce this. The word gospel comes from two Greek words put together, you, which means good, and angelion, which means messenger. When those angels, those messengers showed up to pronounce the birth of Christ, they didn't say, glory to God in the highest, there's been a new teacher that's been born. What did they say? Glory to God in the highest, there is a savior. And now peace is on earth and goodwill towards men. We didn't need another teacher. Good Lord, we don't need another teacher. Because we weren't listening to any of them before, why would we listen to Jesus? Not just another teacher. We didn't need that. We hadn't listened to the ones before, and we weren't going to listen to him. What we needed was a Savior. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, There has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more would not have made a difference to humanity. We have never followed the advice of the great teachers. Why would we be likely to begin just with Jesus? Jesus. Why would we be more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he is the best moral teacher? That makes it even less likely that we should follow him just because he's a moralist. If we cannot take the elementary lessons or the primary lessons, is it likely that we're going to take the most advanced ones? If Christianity only means that one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. And this is the way a lot of people treat Christianity. It might be the way that we tend, even as followers of Christ, to do that too. Because a lot of times what we'll do is we'll, we'll take the word of God and we'll take his teachings and we'll take what Jesus said and we'll just hold those up against other philosophies and say, you know what, if it fits me, I'll follow it. But if it doesn't, I can find something better. You see, Jesus didn't die. Jesus didn't come just to give us some good principles. Jesus came to be our savior because we needed a savior. The most important thing about the gospel is that it must be believed and it must be received personally as a gift. Church, keep that in mind this year when you're giving and receiving gifts. That is the gift that we give and the gift that we receive is a picture of the greatest gift that we could receive in Jesus Christ. We didn't get just another teacher. We got a savior in Jesus Christ because the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. The second thing we learn from the genealogies is that Jesus is the centerpiece of all human history. He is what everything rests on. And what I love about Matthew's genealogy is it's very unassuming. And in its simplicity and in its like bare knuckles, here it is. There's nothing polished in that genealogy. In that, we see God's power. Because God didn't hide anything in the genealogy. We see just what God overcame to bring the Messiah to us. And just what God was doing in the middle of it. Matthew uses a very unassuming line, and he centers all of human history around it. At this point in history, nobody's paying attention to the line of Judah in this nation of Israel. It's a backwater nation that's under oppression of Roman rule. Nobody is paying attention to a baby that is born out of the line of Judah over in Bethlehem. Yeah, he's coming from the royal line of David and everything, but nobody's paying attention to that because Rome is so gigantic and massive. Who's going to overthrow Rome, right? So, nobody's paying attention. It's very unassuming. It's very simple. But God moved the entire world around Jesus Christ. Luke tells us in his gospel what happened. We know the story of Christmas, right? We know what took place. We always look at the manger and we look at the simplicity of the birth in the stable and no room in the inn and going to Bethlehem and Jesus, if he's the King of Kings, not being born in a palace, being born in a barn and he's approachable. And that's a beautiful truth of Christmas. But what we also don't take a look at sometimes is we look at how did they get to Bethlehem in the first place. They had to go 90 miles from Nazareth over to Bethlehem. Why? Because the Roman government was taxing the entire world, the entire empire, which was basically all the known world at that time. They were taxing them. So everybody had to leave where they had moved to to go back to where they had come from to be taxed and to be censused. Now, why did they do that? The Bible says specifically that God moved upon Caesar and God moved upon the Romans to do this. It wasn't like a normally scheduled event. They did this because they felt it was necessary. And so what happens? At a time when she probably shouldn't be traveling, especially by camel, she's very pregnant they go 90 miles on camel to get to Bethlehem and there's no room for them in the inn and they have to have Jesus in the stable and he's supposed to be the Messiah. How could he possibly be the king of kings born in a manger? How could that be happening? Here's what happened. Jesus, or God, moved the entire world just to get two people 90 miles to Bethlehem. You know what that teaches us? That teaches us that all the powers of the world, all the governments of the world, even today, by the way, they're just illusions The true power rests in the throne of heaven. The true power rests in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And what's going on on Capitol Hill doesn't matter a hill of beans compared to what went on on Calvary's Hill. And what's going on in Congress doesn't matter a hill of beans compared to what's going on in the courts of heaven. That's what we're here for. That's what we're created for or what's going on over in England, or what's going on in, other, in Russia or other places. All of those are like chess pieces, and they've always been that way. God moves empires around like chess pieces to accomplish what he's accomplishing in us through Jesus Christ. Remember that next time you open up the news and you hear everybody fretting about what's going on. Remember that my citizenship is ultimately in heaven. Remember that next time we do that. He moved people t- just to move People, 90 miles, he moved the whole world to do that. The center of history is what God is doing in the kingdom of Jesus. Contrary to what we may popularly believe, the center of history is not what's going on in Washington, D.C. The center of history is not what's going on in Moscow. The center of human history is what's going on in the kingdom of God. And to a very self-absorbed generation as we can be, the center of human history is not what's going on in our personal lives either, or on our Instagram accounts. The center of human history is what's going on in God's kingdom. You know what? You may be at a place like Israel was. They have been beaten, bruised, kicked around like a soccer ball for centuries and generations. And here they were under oppression uh, to Rome. And they're thinking, what is God going to do? God's been silent for 400 years. God has given up on us. <laughs> and God hadn't given up. He was getting ready to do his greatest work by sending Jesus Christ. And you may be in that position right now in your life where you feel like, I'm just under all kinds of stress. I'm under all kinds of stuff. And it doesn't seem like God is working. And it seems like there's powers out there that is greater than me. I want to remind you, if you are a child of God, of your position as a child of the most high king, he's got you. And he may seem silent right now, but trust him that he's getting ready to do the greatest work in you. Because this is the third thing that we see from this genealogy is that God is working everything together for his purposes. God's working everything together for his purposes. Look at verse number 17 with me again. This is our key verse. So all of the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David until the exile to Babylon, how many generations? And from the exile to Babylon until Christ, another 14 generations. So how many math scholars we have out here? Help me out. Uh, 14 divided by 2 is what? 7. So 14 is two 7s, Correct. Okay, so seven in the, uh, in the Jewish tradition, seven is the number of completion and also the number of perfection. So what this means is you've got two, genera- two, two completions. He's divided this up into three 14s, which is six sevens, right? How many of your heads are just splitting right now already? All right, which means that when Jesus comes, he's the seventh seven. He's the perfect completion of God's picture. You see that? God's God's not messing around. Even in the genealogies, God's not messing around. God is so in control of everything. If you compare this list to some Old Testament genealogies, some generations are skipped, and I don't have time to go into uh, go into the details of why that happens. But it was a commonly accepted practice at that time. So Matthew writes this out, and he lays this out just like this to show us and to point us to Jesus is the perfect completion of God's plan. Matthew organizes this genealogy. He superimposed his seal of perfection on history. And Jesus is the perfect son in the line who's going to establish the kingdom of God. What we get from that is that Jesus perfects our brokenness in our own generations. In all of those other generations, in all of those six, sevens, there's brokenness. Until we get to Jesus, the completion of all of it. And this is amazing considering the messy, chaotic way things are at. So look at verse number three. It tells us that there is a man named Judah who fathers Perez and Zerah. And then it gives us the mother's name, which is Tamar. If you don't know the story of Tamar, and why would they put Tamar in there? Because back in those days, they didn't put women in genealogies. They didn't include them. But here we see Matthew specifically says, Judah fathers Perez and by Tamar. Why would he do that? Because he's calling attention to the story that many people knew well in the Jewish heritage, but we don't know it real well. Going back to Genesis chapter 38, here's how things play out with Judah and Tamar. Tamar is not actually Judah's wife. Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son. Judah's oldest son does not live very long and dies before giving Tamar a child. So before carrying on the family line. Now for a woman living in the ancient culture at that time, not to have a son and to be widowed meant they were going to be, she was going to be destitute and probably turned out for dead eventually. But also at that time, the Jewish law was that if, a, if a, a man died and did not leave a son to his wife, then the brother, the next oldest brother of the deceased would marry the widow and take him as a wife. So this is a guy named Onan. Onan was forced by law to marry Tamar because that's his legal duty and he was begrudging of that and the Bible tells us that Onan does not want to be married to Tamar and does not want to have a child with Tamar but he has to perform his his husbandly duties and so he comes up with a very creative way to make sure that Uh, Tamar does not have a child. And I'm just not going to get into all the details. I'm going to leave that, and it's all right there in Genesis 38 in case, guys, you want to get your family, get the kids together for family devotions tonight, and y'all can look at that together. Suffice it to say, he gets very creative with his birth control process. God doesn't like it because God had a plan. Again, God was having a plan through this bloodline. God doesn't like it, and so he, the Bible says specifically in Genesis 38, He sees to it that Onan is dead as well. So now here's Tamar having been widowed twice. Judah has one more son. His name is Shelah. By this time, Judah is looking at Tamar like, you are the black widow. Every husband, uh, every son of mine that you touch dies. And so he's like, I don't want to go through with this. And so he begins to stall the marriage process. Some time passes and she realizes he's not going to Give Sheila, uh, give Sheila to me, and I'm going to be in some serious trouble. So she devises her own plan. She realizes that Judah, great guy that he is, he's got a weakness and he's got a penchant, and I'm sorry if there's kids in here but he's got a penchant for hookers, for prostitutes. And so the Bible tells us that what, Tara, uh, what Tamar does is she disguises herself as a prostitute and seduces Judah one night while he is at the brothel and is impregnated with twin boys by her father-in-law. Three months later, when Tamar begins to show, he begins to say, hey, hold on for a second. She looks like she's been with a man and she is pregnant, but I, it hasn't been by any of my boys. And so let's follow the law now and let's take her out of the city walls and let's stone her for her evil practices. As she's being taken out, she pulls out this belt that she had taken from Judah that night at the brothel and holds it up and I don't know if it's one of these, you know, belt buckle type of things, or you know how guys used to put engrave their names in brass along the leather thing. But it's everybody knows it's Judah's belt, and Judah can't deny that he's the father. And so now we've got a pretty dysfunctional situation, don't we? And the Bible says that they he, she gave birth to twin boys, Perez, um, and also Zerah. Imagine how Thanksgiving must have been that year <laughs> at the Judah household. Now understand this, this is Jesus' bloodline, the Messiah, the King of Kings. Would you imagine that that would be included in the royal genealogy? But there it is in black and white and red. I think it's there because, number one, it makes us feel better about our family drama, doesn't it? And number two, it's messy and chaotic and it's undesirable because in all of this, God is still working. Even through all of that mess, God is still working to bring us the Messiah, what this teaches us is that our sins, our brokenness does not have the power to break what God is doing. It doesn't have the power to break what God is doing. And for us to understand, too, that God is working in our life, too, even when it seems like he's absent. I bet when all this dysfunction was going on with Judah and Tamar, the people were thinking, man, this is going to be a beautiful story to sit around the campfire or to sit around the fireplace at night and tell the kids before Christmas. Tell them about what happened with old Grandpa Judah and Aunt Tamar, I guess that's how it goes. I don't know. You see, because God can take our broken pieces and put them back together into something beautiful. He takes the chaotic mess of your life and he stamps his perfect 14 on it. See, the reason that it's broken up into 14 is because two sevens are two completions, two perfections, that even in the mess, God is doubly working in what you're doing in your life. And then we also see this. The gospel is working, or God is working to accomplish his thing, but the the next thing is that we see that God reaches out to outsiders. You see, I already said, in Jewish culture, your genealogy is important, right? Because it showed who you were, it showed the world your worth, it showed where you came from, and it also showed you where you qualified to go. See, the king at this time over Israel is Herod. Herod made sure that his genealogy, which was presented to the council before they could approve him as king, he made sure that his genealogy was really cleaned up and and, and bleached and, and, and all that stuff, making sure that all the unsavory things were taken out. Because when you look at a genealogy and you're being considered for a king, you don't want to have any warts. You don't want to have any weaknesses. You don't want to have anything in there that somebody could come back on you and hold against you. You want to look like you're the awesome person that the king of Israel needs to be. And so, is, and so Herod makes sure that he he, he cuts out all the stuff I was doing. But here's Jesus, the King of Kings, and nothing's cut out. We've already seen we've already seen Tamar, um, but look at the mess that Christ also includes in His. We mentioned Tamar in verse number five. We see that Rahab is mentioned. If you remember, if you remember Bible history, Rahab is a prostitute, who is also a Gentile. She's not even Jewish bloodline that God saved from the destruction of Jericho. So she is one who's also providing the line of the Messiah. Then we also see a woman named Ruth, who was a Moabite woman, not even part of the Jewish bloodline again. By the way, do you see all of these women listed? you see all these women? God wasn't afraid to list women and include women. Why are we? I just wanted to say that. They weren't considered important in those days, yet here they are in Jesus' genealogy, and these aren't even respectable women. Every woman in here is involved in some sort of sexual scandal. And in verse number six, we see David, and then it says specifically the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even get a name. Now, we know who the wife of Uriah is. If you go back and look at history, it's Bathsheba, right? Why do you think that Matthew writes it this way? It's to cause somebody to stop and go, who Who was that? Oh, it's Bathsheba. Oh, I remember the story of Bathsheba. We remember the story of Bathsheba, don't we? David goes out, he sees her, he, he, he calls her in as the king, uses his, his kingly authority to cause uh, the birth of Solomon. And then also, oh, Uriah was in the way because he was the husband of Bathsheba, and so David had to do a murder-for-hire plot and got him killed. And this is messy stuff, and we're talking about the king of kings coming from all of this. All of this stuff. Why? Because in here we see women. We see Gentiles. We see prostitutes. We see murder. We see lust. We see all of these things in this genealogy. And Matthew doesn't try to polish anything up for the king of kings. Why? Because Jesus came for the outcast. We see outcasts mentioned in here. We see people who've been abandoned by culture received and used by God. Jesus' line is full of moral outsiders, ethnic outsiders, gender outsiders. And the message here is that Jesus came for the outcast. And you may be sitting here right now thinking, I'm an outcast. Nobody loves me. I've been, nothing but a, I've been told I'm nothing but a mistake my whole life. I've been kicked around. I've been picked on. I've been rejected. Culture is bent against me. Let me tell you something. The culture of God's kingdom is not bent against anyone. God is willing that none should perish but that all should come to salvation. Whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No matter where we've come from, what we did, who we did it with, God can overcome our sin, our brokenness, our chaos. He reaches to the outsiders and he calls them in. Isaiah tells us that all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of every one of us. When Jesus was on the cross, we were on his mind, but our sin was on his shoulders. And he took it all. Doesn't matter where it came from, where it happened, when it happened, how it happened. He took it on his shoulders, and he carried our sin debt and paid it in full. This is this tears apart what many people think and how many people act when it comes to Jesus and Christianity is that we have to be clean before we can come to him. No, he'll take you dirty. And matter of fact, you can't come to him clean enough. He's the one who does the cleaning. Matthew didn't need to, Matthew didn't need to wash this genealogy because when Jesus was mentioned, it was going to wash it all. I like that, man. Take that one. Matthew didn't need to clean this genealogy up because that was Jesus' job from a spiritual standpoint. And you don't need to clean up your history because that's Jesus' job. And you may be sitting here today and you're saved and he's cleansed you, but the enemy is telling you, man, don't you remember that past? Don't you remember? If it's the past, it's the past. And if it's under the blood, it ain't coming back to the surface in God's eyes. You can be sure that if your past sins that are under the blood are coming to the surface, it's not God bringing them up. It's Satan bringing it up, and here's the thing. He ain't bringing it up. He's only bringing up a shadow. He's only bringing up a whisper of it because it's under the blood, and it can no longer do anything to you in God's eyes. Will there be consequences? Yeah. Are there things that we live with in light of our sin? Absolutely. But understand this. When you stand before God, he's not going to bring up every past sin and say, explain this because our explanation is it is under the blood of your son. That's the beauty of Christmas, and that's exactly what this genealogy teaches us, is that Matthew didn't have to clean it because that's Jesus' job. Abraham and King David are mentioned in the same list as Tamar and the Gentile prostitute, because, as Tim Keller says, in Jesus Christ, prostitutes and kings sit down as equals at the same table." Did you get that? These names are included in the line leading to Christ so that we can know that our name can be included in the line leading from Christ. That God is at work in the ugliest of our situations bringing forth his most beautiful son in Christ and he takes the ugliness of our life and he redeems it for the beauty of his glory. In Christ, prostitutes and kings sit down together as equals at his table. And the last thing as we close out is that Jesus is our ultimate rest and he is our ultimate peace. We see this in our genealogies as well. I said, Jesus is the seventh seven, right? 14 generations leading to, uh, leading up and then for, another 14 and then another 14 leading to Jesus and then a new generation starts with Jesus. And You say, but hold on, Jesus didn't have any kids. I look around and I see a lot of Jesus' kids. Here we are. He's the seventh seven, the perfect perfect. And he sets up a kingdom and a generation that is made perfect not by us, but because of him. Is there dysfunction in our family tree? Absolutely, but the blood of Christ is covering it all. Are there differences? Are there outsiders in our family tree? Yes, but God is covering it all. God is reconciling us all to one another. It doesn't matter what gender we are. It doesn't matter what political party we are. It doesn't matter what race we are. It doesn't matter where we came from. He's brought us all together with him in this perfect generation called the kingdom of God. Out of brokenness, this broken bloodline, comes a reconciled nation under God. And by the way, when I say nation, I mean the kingdom of God. Just wanted to say that. Because he's our ultimate rest. You look back, you look through this, and as you know the history behind some of these guys and the stories and these women in this, you're thinking, you can get tired going through this, thinking, man, what a mess. We didn't even get into Abraham's mess. Or David's a whole lot. There's so much mess included in all of this, but in Jesus, we're made right. And we find rest. God rested, and the importance of the number seven is important because God rested on the seventh day. The significance of seven is not just perfection and completion, but it is that we find rest in him. On the seventh day, God rested. And we can rest in Jesus, our Savior. The firstborn of the kingdom of God. And in him, he says, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, come to me all that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. What that means is I don't have to earn God's love. It's a gift that is given to me that is purchased by him so that you can quit striving, you can quit worrying, you can quit trying to earn it because you can't. It's a gift. You don't have to prove yourself because God proved himself for us in Christ, you have the ultimate approval of the only one whose opinion really matters—God, the Father, your Creator—and you also don't have to bear the weight of the world on your shoulders because Jesus bared the weight of your sin on the cross. And as we close out this morning, I think this is the crux of the message: is that Jesus brought rest and order to a broken world. And he's still doing it today. It didn't stop right there. He's still doing it today. And the question this morning is, are you finding rest in Jesus? You see, I opened this morning by claiming that this genealogy contains all the essentials that you need to know about Christianity, and I believe that's true. In this genealogy, we find ourselves. We find stories that make us feel better about ourselves, don't they? We find stories that we think, how in the world could God redeem that? Most most definitely, how in the world could Jesus come from that? But he came from that because he came to redeem all that. To show us that no matter how dark it may look, Jesus will light your world. No matter how broken it may feel, Jesus will put it back together again. No matter how dead you may seem inside, Jesus resurrects us to the new life. No matter how dysfunctional you may think things are going, Jesus will bring function to it and glory for his purpose. Here's what John 1, 12 tells us this as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. You want to be in this bloodline? You want to be in this genealogy? You want to be in that seventh, seventh generation? Trust Jesus. Come to him.